Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We're continuing in our study of uh, the Church 101, just the basics of church life and how we think about our commitments as a church. And we'll continue that. I think we have a couple more weeks here lined up of things that are just good for us to revisit to remind us what the church is to be. Everywhere you look around you today, you probably have noticed, uh, I think literally every business, large or small, uh, are looking to hire people. There are job openings everywhere because businesses are not able to find qualified applicants. Uh, one of the biggest anchors that some economics uh, gurus have uh, posited, some of the biggest anchors weighing down our recovery over the last year has uh, been the lack of work um, that uh, hasn't been filled, jobs that are open and one of the biggest drags on economic output is finding people to do the work. There's a demand out there, but there are very few workers. There's this mismatch between job openings and job applicants willing to do certain, certain things. And as a result, um, positions have sat vacant for months, in some cases uh, more than months. It's come on, some of the businesses have had to actually curtail their operations as a result of it. Um, they need... They need people to run their businesses, and their people are not coming back. The consequence of this kind of a gap affects both companies, and it affects job seekers, and it ends up being a drag on the whole economic system. It stunts growth, and it stunts expansion. And we understand that on a very basic kind of economic level. But there is a just as large, if not a larger, need for workers in our spiritual economy as there is in our physical economy. The church needs workers just as desperately as the world. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Jesus highlights this need, this uh, help-wanted sign, if you will, in Scripture in John chapter 9, verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, and then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech or plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You see, when the Lord looked out at his people in Israel, he looked out at the masses. He saw them, people hopelessly lost in their sin hopelessly lost under sin's consequences. They were distressed, he says, under duress. They were dispirited, thrown down in hopeless uh, uh, lack. They, they were like sheep. He describes them as sheep without a shepherd. They were languishing. We know sheep don't thrive well on their own. They need to be tended. They need to be cared for. The masses of people that Jesus encountered were suffering horrifically under the wages of sin's rebellion. It was true then, and it's just as true now. Uh, we live in a world of people crushed under sin's slavery. Selfish ambition hollows out homes and families. Vanity is rampant. Pride, every kind of sensuality leads men and women, young and old, to seek the cheap glory of the things of this world. Laziness abounds. Idolatry Consuming greed, corrosive envy, envy, right? Fill in the blank. The, the, the list goes on and on. 
And yet, the harvest of souls who need to hear and obey the liberating and heart-transforming message of the gospel, that, that harvest of souls is plentiful. It's as bountiful as it's ever been in human history. But the workers, the workers willing to take that good news that Jesus Christ died upon a cross, that he, that he rose from the grave, and that he sets souls free from sin's penalty and its power, the workers are few. The workers are few. There is a deficit of workers in the church. And just as that deficit of workers and laborers in the U.S. workforce affects the whole economic system, stunting growth and expansion, so the deficit in the church, and I use the church in the large context. I don't mean specifically this church, but there's a whole, there's a deficit in the church that affects the Great Commission, that hinders the spread of the gospel, and it's and the harvest of souls prepared by God to hear that message and believe it. If you look around you in the community in which we live, the harvest of souls is plentiful. But the question is, where, where are the workers? Where are the workers? The Lord of the harvest has job openings that need to be filled. And yet it's still so hard to find workers, people to do the work of gospel ministry. Jesus had a message to proclaim, first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but later to the sheep of another fold. He references this in Matthew 10, in verse 1. He says here that the workers he was sending out into the harvest, he summoned the twelve disciples, Matthew 10, verse 1, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of of sickness. Jesus then sent them out to preach the good news of the kingdom. He invested them with his divine authority, power to validate their message, and then he sent them out. Verse 7, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we see later on in verse 24, he realize, we realize that Jesus defines what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 24, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. A disciple is literally a student, a learner. It is one who follows in the footsteps of a teacher. This is the way that Jesus describes his relationship with his workers, his followers. They are his disciples. They are his disciples. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a follower of Christ. You cannot be a follower of Christ and not be a disciple of Christ. There aren't Christians and then disciples. You're either a disciple and a Christian, or you're not a disciple and not a Christian. They're one in the same thing. Jesus then goes on to describe the cost of discipleship later on in chapter 10. And this is probably why there's not so many workers Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Uh, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must turn away from everything that dishonors God. You must die to yourself and that's what it means by he invoking this imagery of the cross here in this passage. And you must follow Jesus by faith. 
The call of the gospel, then, is a call to discipleship. It's a call to yield your entire life to him. Because only those who follow Christ in self-renouncing faith are worthy to be called his disciples. Perhaps that's why it's so hard to find workers. Imagine that as a job description. Forsake everything and come and follow me. And so I ask you that question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life, your will, your desires, your thoughts to Jesus Christ? Christ? Have you recognized within your heart the bankruptcy of your own efforts to please God, to earn his favor, to come to any kind of uh, reconciliation with him on your own efforts? Have you come to the end of yourself in all of its wickedness and rebellion, and have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ because his lordship stands over all and he demands your whole life? If you haven't done that, I would plead with you this morning. Today must be the day of salvation. Come to him. There is a judgment coming, Paul says in Acts 17, verse 31. He has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And that person is Jesus Christ. So if you're not a disciple of Christ, that judgment that Paul references, that Jesus references in his gospel, will fall on you and you will be found guilty, the scripture says, and there will be nothing you can do about it at that point. It is a terrifying thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. He has put out a sign that says, workers wanted. Follow him. Join his cause. In his presence, the scripture says, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Follow Christ. Become a disciple of Christ by faith today. If today is the day, may it be true for every heart here this morning. And if you're already a disciple of Christ, we must become more and more like our teacher. Matthew 10, verse 24, The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. The aspiration of every teacher is that their student would one day be like them in terms of knowledge, in terms of um, competence and skill. And it's the same with Christ. That is his desire. His desire is, is that they would mature and look increasingly like the Savior. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, he talks about this maturing process that is true of all disciples. And uh, we equip the saints for the work of service, and, and we keep at this work until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that's the goal. We want to attain to Christ's maturity, which, of course, will never be completed until, until Christ returns or we are promoted to glory. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 also speaks of this discipleship process. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
So to be a disciple and to be a disciple of Christ is to have our lives increasingly transformed into the likeness of our master, the Lord Jesus. Discipleship, then, is essential to the Christian life. That's what this introduction is meant to kind of lay before us. Discipleship is essential to the Christian life. Without it, the church wouldn't even exist. There'd be no church. And so we consider Christ's promise, as we consider that promise in Matthew 16, verse 18, which has kind of been our anchor point as we've gone through this series, this promise that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, that promise that no physical force can thwart the church's advance, no spiritual force can thwart the church's advance, inherent in that promise is a commitment by the church to discipleship, to pursuing discipleship. If we're going to become the kind of church that prevails against every adversary in the world, we have to be committed to making and maturing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is our commitment. That is our commitment. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And over the past several weeks, we've identified a number of commitments that the New Testament lays out for Christ's church, the local church. Things that we must be committed to if Christ is going to build and establish our church. The first, we said, was expository preaching and dynamic teaching. Secondly, we highlighted the importance of the lifestyle of worship. It's not just Sunday mornings. It's our whole lives are meant to be an offering, a sacrifice of worship to God. Last week, we saw how our church is committed and must be committed to deliberate shepherding, that the church is like a flock. We're all sheep, and we all stray, and we need the care and the shepherding, the leading, the feeding, the protecting of righteous shepherds, leaders in the church, but even the shepherding of one another as we care for and minister the Word of God Speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 says, to one another, calling each other to God's standard. We, this is everyone's responsibility to some degree. And so this morning, I want to argue that there's a fourth commitment that we must have to be the kind of church God calls us to be, and that is we must be committed to transparent discipleship. We must be committed to transparent discipleship. So that's kind of our fourth a commitment that we have, expository preaching, worship, shepherding, and now transparent discipleship. And I have really three, um, I guess, arguments or proofs as to why we must be committed to that. First, we must be committed to transparent discipleship because God expects us to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. God expects us to... Make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. It's so foundational. Sometimes you say, well, of course, but we need to actually review this and remind ourselves of this reality. When the Lord Jesus concluded his earthly ministry, he gathered with his disciples in the region of Galilee, and uh, the scripture says that he gave them a kind of marching orders in Matthew 28, and we know it well. It says, when the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, when they saw him, they worshipped him, 
And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He gathers with the disciples because that was where they were, most of them were. And he confirms to them that all authority belongs to him. The, the time of his condescension is over. The time of his humiliation has ended. Uh, he has gone to the cross, and now he has risen from the grave. He's accomplished the work that God has sent him to do, the Father has sent him to do, and he has now been exalted to the place of absolute authority. This is a strong claim to deity. Only God has absolute authority. And here Jesus says, I have that authority. And because the Lord Jesus possesses that absolute authority, what he commands, we must do. We must obey. And he gives this very detailed command to his followers. And uh, we know this, of course, as the Great Commission. And the primary exhortation that Christ gives here in verse 19 and 20 is to make disciples. English translations vary to some degree, but they place the participle, the going, before the main verb, which is disciples, make disciples. The exhortation is make disciples. And you do that going, baptizing, and teaching. In other words, those are the ways in which we accomplish this work. But here Jesus gives the disciples a standing order that remains in effect even today, and that is we are to make disciples of all the nations. This is the Great Commission. God expects us as the church to be about the task of making disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is what he's left us here to do. It's the reason we remain. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the apostles at the Mount of Olives, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, that's the work of discipleship. We make disciples by giving testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we call unbelievers to repent and to trust him and to follow him. It's really not more complicated than that. That is the task. And once others have become followers of Christ, trusting in him by faith, we baptize them. We baptize them, allowing them to give a public declaration and testimony of their commitment to Jesus. That they're no longer enemies of God, lost in their sin, but they are now disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus. This is why we preach and teach and practice believers' baptism. So important. The believer at baptism gives, is an opportunity for them to give testimony to the discipleship that they now occupy of Jesus Christ. They are his followers. And uh, we do that as a way to affirm in the pattern that Jesus has given here in the Great Commission that one has given their life over to Jesus Christ. But we don't just baptize them to make disciples. Part of that discipleship-making process is teaching, maturing. If you see in verse 20, we are to go, obviously we have to be going to do this out into the world. We have to baptize those who profess faith, and we have a responsibility to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. This is the work. We're to make disciples and teach them God's word so that they can obey it. 
This is what it means to be a maturing disciple. We teach the scriptures to each other so that we can reflect the character of our master. This is every Christian's responsibility. This is not just my responsibility as a pastor or son's responsibility as an elder and shepherd or Philip's responsibility as a deacon or anybody else. It's all of our responsibility. Husbands, you're to faithfully instruct your wives and children in the word of God. Uh, believing wives, you're to partner with your husbands to diligently train your children in the word. Each and every believer in the church is to be setting a godly example with their lives and speaking truth to one another in love, spurring each other on to love and good deeds, bearing one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 says, so that we would grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. We as leaders have that responsibility to Equip the saints to do this work. And the large part of that work of equipping is enabling and outfitting God's people with the maturity and the knowledge to go and make disciples. As Christ's church, then, we're committed to transparent discipleship because God expects us to do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's what we're here for. Secondly, we're committed to this transparent discipleship as a church because God not only expects us to do that, he equips us as his followers to do that. He equips us to make and mature disciples. You know, all the things that I've just said, you, you may be tempted to think, well, I don't know if I have the resources to do that. I mean, me? Uh, I'm not a pastor. I don't have, a, I don't have some kind of theology training or... Um, maybe you didn't get saved until later in life, and so you, you feel like you don't have the credentials to, to make and mature disciples because maybe the, the large portion of your life was lived outside of the Christ and the gospel. And there are a lot of reasons that we can tell ourselves why we can't fulfill this responsibility or we can't do it to the degree that we need to, but they're simply that. They're excuses. They're not true. You, you have everything you need, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, God has equipped you to make disciples. That is so important to understand. God has equipped you to do this as well as he's equipped me. You really only need two things to make and mature disciples. Two things. And then they're alliterated because that's what I do. You need the word of God and you need a willingness to build relationships. Two things. To make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, you need two things. You need the Word of God, and you need a willingness to build relationships with other people. First, the Word of God. That's essential. You cannot make a disciple of Jesus Christ apart from the Word. You need the Scriptures. They are the powerful authority that you appeal to as you call unbelievers to repentance and faith. If you look at 2 Timothy 3 for just a minute, it's a text we know well, but um, Paul says this to Timothy in verse 14. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And then he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, they're inspired, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate 
or complete. That's really the term, equipped for every good work. Paul says, you've learned and become convinced of God's truth. And where did he do that from? From the scriptures. From the scriptures. They are the means by which the wisdom of God that leads to salvation is imparted. He then goes on to explain that the scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Everything you need to live a godly life is in the scriptures. Everything we need to live a godly life is contained in scripture. It doesn't give us the answer to everything. In other words, it doesn't speak to every specific instance, but it gives us the truth we need to be able to interpret every situation through the lens of God's will and his ways. Everything you need to make in mature disciples is in the scriptures. It tells us about the origins of the universe. It tells us the reason for sin. The scriptures tell us God's plan of salvation, how he chose Israel, and through Israel, brought salvation to the nations. It speaks of the arrival of the Savior and the eyewitness testimony of his life and his death and his burial and resurrection. You have the history of the church contained in the scriptures. You have the apostolic doctrine contained in the New Testament letters. And and God's truth is explained and applied in a present context. And you have a detailed explanation of what is to come. You have everything you need. I have everything I need to make disciples. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So to make disciples, you need the word of God, and you need to know it. You need to study it. Our job is to equip you to feed your soul with the truth. God's revelation to man. Without that, you are literally flying blind. But the word of God alone isn't enough to make disciples. Secondly, you need a willingness to build relationships with people. You need a willingness to build relationships with people. There is, uh, this is where um, discipleship, the bandwagon goes off into the ditch. People are all about God's word and people are all about hearing it taught and studying it for themselves and meditating on it and praying over it. But when it comes to ministering that word to other people, they're unwilling to invest the time and emotional capital to build relationships with people with whom they can share Christ or strengthen their walk with Christ. This is the problem. Ministry is about people. I'm just going to say that again. Underscore that. Write that down in your notes. Burn it in the back of your mind. Ministry. Gospel ministry is about people. It's not about tasks. Tasks are a means to an end. Setting up chairs is important and necessary, but it's a means to an end. Ministering to little ones in the nursery is important and helpful, but it's a means to an end. So it's necessary and good and right and glorifies Christ, but it is a means to an end. And you need to think about task-oriented ministry in that way. I'm doing this task because it helps facilitate ministry with other people or between people. 
Uh, look, with, look at me at 2 Timothy 2, 2. I guess you just flip over if you're already in chapter 3. One chapter back. Paul says, the things that you've learned from me, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let me ask you this. Where do you think Timothy heard these things that Paul references? He did this in the context of his friendship and his fellowship with Paul. How would Timothy entrust those things to other men? He would do that in the context of friendship and fellowship with those men. How would those faithful men teach others? Well, in the context, it would be through their friendship and fellowship with other men. So the point is that it's in the context of relationships that these things are being imparted from one to the next to the next, from one generation to the next. Uh, look at Second Timothy, or Second Corinthians, excuse me, six, one to eleven. It's kind of a big section, but it's worth reading and it's worth considering because we don't we don't think about this. He says, in working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. So Paul was concerned about his life, uh, not offending, unnecessarily anyway, offending those whom he ministered to. He says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity and knowledge, in patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by the glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And he says, our mouth, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open why? Paul loved these people. He sacrificed for them. His time, his treasure, his physical well-being, he nearly gave up his own life to preach the gospel to them and to see Christ fully formed with them. In other words, it's in the context of loving relationships that the gospel goes forward. Jesus opened up his life to 12 disciples and he poured his truth into them. Paul opened up his life to the Corinthians, as we read here, and to Timothy, and to Barnabas, and to Luke. Read the book of Acts. And countless other souls in the church. And he poured God's truth into them. He says at the end of Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders, he says, We did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole word of God. And if you're going to make and mature disciples, you must be willing to open up your life and build relationships with other people to have any opportunity to speak the truth, to minister God's truth to their lives. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. 
That's what I mean by transparent discipleship. You have to be willing to share your life with other people. To live before them openly. As Paul says, you are not restrained by us. You are restraining your own affections. Open wide to us in return. Paul said in Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, as they looked at his life, they saw what mature Christianity should look like. But they saw it and they heard it. And they learned it from his mouth as he taught and they received it. They didn't fight back against it and question it. Spiritual friendships are the vehicle for that to happen in the church. They aren't shared, they aren't forged unless there is shared time and shared life. And until you learn to cultivate a heart for people, making and maturing disciples will never characterize your ministry. That's why we have said over and over again that the goal of Christian maturity is not knowledge. It's not not knowledge. It's not ignorance. But that is not the pinnacle. The pinnacle is when you can take that knowledge and minister that to other people such that you can lead them along to greater maturity. And I'm so thankful that God has given me those kinds of relationships over the years. People who've opened up their lives to me. People in this church who have shared their lives with me. You shepherd and care for me as I shepherd and care for you. God exposes my sin and my selfishness. And he shows me where I need to grow and what I don't understand. And all these things. What You're helping me do that just as I try to help you do that. And, 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 it, and that has happened most effectively in the context of relationships. The reality is God has equipped us with everything we need to make disciples. All we need is the word of God and a willingness to build relationships with other people. If Christ's church is committed to transparent discipleship, we have to be committed to this relationship-building to make disciples. You say, okay, God expects me to make disciples. God equips me to make disciples. But, I mean, what if I do all those things and people don't get saved? What if I do all those things and people don't grow the way I expect? What if I do all those things and it doesn't work? This leads into our third point. We can remain committed to the work of discipleship, transparent discipleship, because God enables his followers to make and mature disciples. He enables us. God never asks you to do something he doesn't at the same time give you the ability to do. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 3. We were there just a few, maybe a month and a half ago, in our study, Consecutive Exposition, and we'll get back there pretty soon. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 3... You remember in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, there was all this factionalism within the body of the church, as Paul calls that out. Some were saying they were of Apollos. Some were saying they belonged to Paul and whatnot. And Paul says, what are these men? They're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. 
And then he gives this incredibly liberating truth in verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Friends, our job in discipleship is to water, or to plant, and to water. That's our job. We sow gospel seed. We made that commitment as a church. We are making maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And one of the ways we do that is by sowing gospel seed. We water those tender shoots of faith as we exert ourselves and as we build relationships and bring the word of God to bear in hearts and lives. But in the end, God is the one who makes things grow. He says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. In other words, all we can control is our effort. That's it. All we can do is control our... God takes all our efforts and he rewards us justly. I would, I would say beyond justly, graciously for our efforts. But the results of our labor, that's up to God. In the end, it's up to God. This is so, so liberating. In other words, it doesn't ultimately depend on me. It's about faithfulness. It's about perseverance. It's about effort. And those are things I can control. You can control. So important. God expects us, he equips us, and he enables us to make disciples. So the Lord said it, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The church, which the Lord says will advance in the face of every opposition, has to be a church committed to transparent discipleship. It just has to be. He expects us to follow him in making in disciples. He equips us to follow him. He enables us to follow him. The church multiplies and expands as we are faithful to this commitment. That's it. I don't know where I put it, but I had a copy of the bulletin floating around here somewhere. Can I take your bulletin? Thank you. Is it hard being that sweet? You take your bulletin, you fold it in half once. A sheet of paper is about 1.1 millimeter. So fold it in half again, fold it in half again. If you were to do this 50 times, which you couldn't do, but if you did, how high do you think that stack of, that little teeny tiny stack of paper, how high do you think it would reach? Well, someone did the math. It would reach, assuming the piece of paper is 0.1 millimeters thick, if you were to fold it over 50 times, that stack of paper would be, end up being 112 million 589,000 kilometers thick. Now, the moon's only 384,000 kilometers, 384,000. So, and essentially, you could get to the moon and back almost 300 times just by folding this little piece of paper over 
50 times. It illustrates the tremendous power of multiplication. That's all it meant to show you. Just as multiplication is possible exponentially in the physical realm, it is equally possible in the spiritual realm. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, the, the things you've heard from me, the things you've heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's not just men. Ladies, it can be other women, children, co-workers, family. The things you heard from Christ, these things we can impart to others. That has to be our commitment. It must be our commitment as a church. And if we do that, many will reject. But as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, some will believe. And some will be brought to saving knowledge of Christ. God's got his people out there. Our job is not to um, force them or manipulate them or um, twist and distort the message to draw people in or make it more palatable. We're simply to proclaim it in love and grace in the context of spiritual friendship for the purpose of discipleship. This is our calling. This is our commitment. And I pray that God would enable us to do that with ever greater faithfulness for his name's sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the power of your word. We know that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And the reality is that if we would simply trust you enough to speak and to proclaim it, and to humble ourselves and give our lives toward to others, away for others' sake and benefit, we would see the fruits of those labors ever greater manifest in our lives, in our church, in our families. We pray that you would stir up the hearts of this church to be committed to this task of transparent discipleship, that we would be the kind of church that prevails against even the gates of hell itself. Lord, we thank you for the many faithful disciples and disciple makers that you've given us. Lord, empower us to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.